0: This is Press Lounge. Here, you'll get an insight into the minds of people who are changing the world. On November 15th, Ukraine war brief journalist Yulia and friend of the podcast Maria Shavalova, lecturer and literary critic at the National University of Kiev-Mohyla Academy and Fulbright Scholar at the Harriman Institute at Columbia University in the city of New York, spoke with Sergei Plochi, professor of Ukrainian history and director of the Harvard-Ukrainian Studies Research Institute or HURI, at Harvard University at his office right here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. His 2015 book, The Gates of Europe, was a New York Times bestseller. His May 2023 book, The Russo-Ukrainian War, is out now. He sat down with us to talk about why the West must support Ukraine, why an armistice would be a loss, and what history tells us about Russian imperialism. He's also one of five professors at prestigious universities who collaborated with United24 to raise money to close Ukraine's skies. Russia's recent massive air attacks that killed over 20 civilians and injured many more, plus the fact that Western aid is in doubt, particularly here in the United States, where Republicans are blocking additional security assistance from being appropriated in Congress, led us to believe there's no better time to publish this episode of The Press Lounge. In previous episodes, you can hear from Mstislav Chernov, director of the Oscar nominated 20 Days in Mariupol, and Charles McBride, who enlightens us on the pernicious ideology of the tanky, where the US is always bad and violence, even in self defense, is unjustified. Let's dive in.
1: Why do you think it's uh, so difficult for Americans to understand that Ukrainians can self-govern and that all of these protests and all of this fighting for independence is not organized by a third party or by a bigger power behind them?
2: My understanding is that uh, most of Americans believe that the revolution of dignity that happened 10 years ago and then all other processes in Ukraine, that they're processes that come from within the Ukrainian society. And uh, because the majority of Ukrainians believe in that, there is this support for Ukraine. It's not now on the level that it was maybe at the start of the all-out aggression, Mm -hmm. but it is still quite, quite significant. And we also see that it is that support that assures that there is a majority of members of the Congress that support uh, assisting Ukraine. But on the other hand, there are, of course, uh, other narratives, and one of those narratives is that it is the responsibility of the West, that when Victoria Nuland went to Maidan and was given cookies, that in reality, those were not cookies. But that was uh, that, that that was incitement for, for revolt for uprising on the part of Victoria Nuland, State Department, Washington, NATO, you call it. And that particular narrative is uh, popular among uh, the group, uh, political political group that uh, really uh, is very suspicious about the United States international policy in general and perceives American foreign policy to be imperialistic. Uh, uh, what, what accepting this narrative makes to them, the, 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 it, it makes them really accomplices of the uh, Vladimir Putin, of the war of aggression, but there is uh, really no desire or no ability for self-reflection from that point of view. The logic that works is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend and probably the, the cause of that uh, of that enemy of my enemy is just. So I don't I can't say that this is this is the uh, position of the majority but it is certainly a very influential group within American politicum that adopts that position. And it's, it's certainly factually wrong, uh, but it is, it is there and it is very important really to try to show that the story of Ukraine is not about agency in that story coming from Washington or from London or from, from Brussels, that Ukrainian people have the agency of their own And that what is happening in Ukraine uh, in the last ten years. This is Ukraine's struggle for independence. Something that generally resonates with the majority of the Americans. For majority of
3: people, the war started February twenty-four. Ukrainians Mm. are doing a lot of effort to explain that it started twenty fourteen. Though in your book you elaborate that story is much longer than that. Can you please explain for broader audience? a longer perspective of Russian-Ukraine and the relationship, and what caused the war that started in 2014?
2: The general background for this war is, in very broad terms, the same as the background for the War of Independence in the United States of America. This is the story of the disintegration and collapse of empires. Russian Empire happened to be uh, one of the largest in the world. It's one-sixth of the surface of the Earth. Mm-hmm. That has been covered by that by that empire. You don't acquire that territory by being a nation state; you acquire this territory by being an empire. And the process of the disintegration of empire uh, goes for a long period of time. Like was the story of the disintegration of the British mm-hmm. Empire it didn't collapse as the result of the American Revolution. It continued for for not just for a number of decades, for a number of centuries after that. So we see today the story in many ways very similar to the American story. Ukraine is fighting for its independence. The desire of the former imperial power is to take away that independence and to keep Ukraine as part of the Russian sphere of influence. As simple as that. The war indeed didn't start in February of 2022. The war started in... February, late February of 2014. and it was a response to the revolution of dignity in Ukraine. that was response to the victory of Maidan revolution. And what that victory meant in geopolitical terms was that Ukraine was going to sign and it indeed it signed Association agreement with European Union. Association agreement with European Union, this is not membership in EU. Mm-hmm. this is not membership in NATO. But what association agreement meant was that Ukraine, after signing that agreement, could not sign and become another agreement and become part of the Eurasian Union that Vladimir Putin was trying to build. So it's not even about Ukraine joining the West. It's about Ukraine positioning itself in the way that it wouldn't continue to be part of the Russian sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. If this is not the imperial origins of the war, I really don't know what that sort of imperial origins, what kind of circumstances there should be to convince the people that we are dealing with. In a way, a very, very familiar story from the history of the bloody disintegration of other empires and really Mm -hmm. slow retreat of those empires from the territories, uh, colonies, dependencies that they used to control.
3: Another biggest misconception is that Ukraine appeared only in 1991 and and Rus, a society that belonged to Russian Empire. Can you please explain for a broader audience?
2: Well, if, if you think about, about the imperial history and relations of Ukraine with empires, certainly um, the Russian Empire has to get in line to claim Ukraine as exclusively <laughs> Russian possession. Unfortunately, Ukraine, uh, through its history, had both the history of independent existence. In the medieval times, there existed a major East European state called Kievan Rus, mm-hmm. called today by historians. But with the capital in Kiev, we see the existence of the Cossack Hetmanate in the 17th century. But For a long period of time, Ukraine was also a part of other states and empires in particular, from the Ottoman Empire to Austria-Hungary to the Russian one. So if you reject Ukrainian existence as an independent state, which would be wrong historically and otherwise, but even if you do that, Russia just doesn't have exclusive claim for those territories. On the top of that, if you look today at the map of the world, The majority of countries that you find there on that map, they didn't exist on that map before the 20th century. They were uh, possessions of other empires or other states. So Ukrainian story is very much the story of the 20th century of the building modern nationhood. There were pre-modern nationhoods in Ukrainian history, but the modern nationhood, this is the story of the 20th century, and it, it is part of the, of the global story. Again, story of the disintegration of the empires and formation of nation-states on their ruins.
3: It's kind
1: of a question, but it's more of a navigation question, right? Uh, for In my own research, I've noticed parallels between the formation of the state of Kievan Rus with the formation of Ukraine, right? Where the values and the stri- and striving for freedom are very similar, whereas Russia is an antithesis to what Kievan Rus was. Could you walk a broader audience through the similarities in the state of Kievrus Rus with the modern state of Ukraine versus how different Russia is from what Kiev Rus entailed?
2: With regard to Kiev, Rus, I used already the word empire Mm -hmm. a number of times, and this is the term that is, unlike the term nation, is really used toward modern times, Mm -hmm. pre-modern times, medieval times, and so on and so forth. So in a matter of speaking, Kiev and Rus was an empire, Mm -hmm. with the center of it being in Kiev, uh, cultural, political, military, and otherwise center. And uh, what is today Russia being a periphery of that state? Uh, And today's Russian claim for Kievan Rus would be of a sort that probably the French would make and and they were making in the medieval times claim for the Roman Empire, right? So we have a periphery, state that emerges on the periphery of a major political and cultural entity trying to make an exclusive claim for that entity. That's in terms of relations between Russian history and history of the Kievan Rus. In terms of the differences between Russia and Ukraine, I think that it would be more productive to talk about that already starting with the early modern times when we really see the emergence of, of different states on the Ukrainian and, and Russian territories. Because of course, Moscovy uh, and Moscovite state being in Russia and the emergence, for example, of the Cossack state mm-hmm. uh, in Ukraine In 1654, there is the so-called Pereyaslav Agreement, where Ukraine becomes part of the, uh, accepts the, the suzerainty of the Russian Mm Tsars, on the basis of agreement. And you can uh, see immediately the differences in terms of the political culture between the two states, when the two sides understand that agreement, the Pereyaslav Agreement is very different. From the Russian point of view and perspective, the agreement is about the really almost unconditional surrender of the sovereignty and autonomy to the Russian source. From the perspective of the Cossack officers in Pereyaslav, this is about the agreement between the two equal sides, where each of the side have particular obligations. If those obligations are not fulfilled, then the deal is off. That was pretty much the story in terms of justification of all the Cossack uprisings against Russian authorities in the second half of the 17th and then in the 18th century. And we talked about the formation of the modern Ukrainian state in the 20th century. It's interesting that the first manifesto of creation of such state, published in the year 1900, by a lawyer, Ukrainian lawyer, called uh, Mykola Mikhanovsky, He basically makes the legal claim on the basis of the violation of the Periaslav Agreement of 1654. So the story of that agreement, in my opinion, is one of the best ways to demonstrate different political culture and different legal culture that existed in both states, and we can certainly trace that since mid-17th century.
1: It very much also echoes how Russia treats Crimea and how Ukraine treated Crimea, right? I mean, we didn't do enough to encourage Ukrainian culture in Crimea, but I think that our idea was that Ukrainians and Krimle work together and live in two states that are cooperating. Whereas Russian idea of uh, Krim is that, oh, there are no Krimle in there, and this is just a made-up nation, and this is Russian land and always was Russian land, always will be Russian land, and it has no autonomy.
2: Uh, yes, and it is the Russian land that was acquired by Russia very recently in historical terms. The first annexation of the Crimea, this is 1783. Mm-hmm. So it is basically an imperial possession that in the course of the 19th century was turned into the almost the essence, almost the center of the Russian land with the mythology of mm-hmm. Sevastopol as the city of Russian glory. So looking at the history of Crimea from 1783 until today, uh, this is also understanding the way how empires work in general, not only in terms of territorial acquisitions, but also in terms of the treating of the indigenous population there, and then really appropriating history of the region as quintessentially Russian. So I, I can't I can't point to any other part of the former Russian Empire where that imperial appropriation would happen faster and would be more clear in terms of what is happening and how it's happening. Again, Sevastopol was turned into one of the uh, one of the key holy sites of the Russian Empire after the Crimean War of mid 19th century and preserved that status to a degree in the Russian imagination all the way through the 20th century and into this war.
3: Your book was published after a year of full-scale invasion, and in the book you stated that war will last at least till 2024, and in the latest article published in Kiev independent on the book, there was a code that we should prepare and consider this war as long as possible and as seriously as possible in order to win it as soon as possible. Can you please elaborate more why you think this struggle will continue significant amount of time?
2: We all hope that uh, the war will end soon. Um, If you look at the war from the historical perspective and understand it as the war for independence against basically really declining empire, uh, we know what the outcome of that war will be because we have examples of the American Revolution, we have the examples of of the emergence of independent states in Europe, in Africa, Asia, and so on and so forth. So the history in that sense is on the Ukrainian side. But history can't really be a good guide in terms of uh, providing the particular chronological frame. Unfortunately, what we see from history, these processes can be long. The process of disintegration of empire can also occur very fast. There is no one pattern that one can follow. What is happening with this particular war is that Russia, Russian Federation, the current regime in Russia... Uh, started to prepare for this war long time ago mm-hmm. and we know that since at least mid 2022 once the realization came that Ukraine didn't collapse that Ukraine will fight back the preparation started for for a longer war in terms of restructuring economy preparing for the for the war conditions and that certainly suggests that the war can't be really won if Ukraine and Ukraine's allies are not prepared to fight that sort of war that, first of all, the war was really forced on Ukraine and the world by Putin. And now the longer war, the more exhaustive war, the war of attrition is being forced again by aggressor. So unless, unless Ukraine is not, and its allies, again, I think allies are very important in that story, are prepared to fight that war, it's quite possible and, and quite easy to lose the war. Not in a sense that Russia would achieve its original goals of wiping up U- Ukraine and Ukrainian identity from the map, political, mm-hmm. cultural and otherwise. That will not happen. Mm-hmm. But certainly the conditions on which the war can end could mm-hmm. be of a sort that uh, we already know from Minsk I and Minsk Two, which instead of peace... There would be just an armistice, which will provide time for the aggressor to get ready for another aggression. So for me, that sort of peace would be tantamount to loss.
1: Well, I think in general, in order to win the war, you need to fight the war uh, with the mindset that you're about to lose it. How do you get out of here? So basically, you know, I think that people who think they've won the war before they actually have are destined to lose Because you lose your focus and if you go about it thinking that you can lose at any moment, you continue challenging yourself and you continue trying to find best strategies, best solutions and best ways to win. And so I think that with wars like this one, the best way to win it is to go about it as if you were losing it.
2: I think like in anything that is difficult, you need a combination of belief in victory and also a very realistic assessment of what the situation is on the ground. And both are needed. And then the question is how to make these two things work. That's the challenge in war. This is challenge in peace. This is in challenge in everything that we are undertaking. And each day we are finding a different balance between these two yeah. things. And that's that's daily task.
3: In your book, you also address West's shortcomings in, say, guarding security in Ukraine back in the past, for example, uh, criticizing Budapest Memorandum. And can you please explain more about Budapest Memorandum, why it was not the best solution, and uh, um, how securing situation in Ukraine is important for Americans, for example, and for listeners of the podcast?
2: Yeah, the Budapest Memorandum was part of the nuclear disarmament of Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. Three post-Soviet republics that, along with Russia, inherited the entire Soviet arsenal. So, technically, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine was in possession, not in the operational control, but was in possession of the third largest arsenal in history after the United States and Russia. And through joint efforts of the United States of America and the Russian Federation, those nuclear weapons were removed from Ukraine. To add insult to injury, they were removed on the territory of Russia. And everyone celebrated major victory. So denuclearization was perceived as a very positive development. There are arguments pro and contra in terms of nuclear disarmament in general and th- this aspect of fighting nuclear proliferation, whether it was in the interests of the world, whether they, that was in the interests of the United States or not. And again, we can probably debate that for long, long, long period of time. My argument is not addressing that particular debate. My argument is of a different nature. By removing nuclear weapons from Ukraine, the West failed to provide an adequate deterrent for the future aggression by Russia and other states. So the role of the nuclear weapons in the world, since the first atomic bombs were exploded over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, is deterrence. Everyone knows that American negotiators, British and French and others who signed on the Budapest Memorandum on the dotted line, they all knew that. They learned that in their job, they learned that at their universities, they removed the deterrent. They replaced it with nothing. Maybe nothing is too harsh, they replaced it with a piece of paper called Budapest Memorandum with assurances instead of guarantees. And that was really a major mistake. As a minimum, it was a major mistake because the removal of the nuclear weapons from Ukraine without replacing it with guarantees through NATO, through any other agreement, Budapest, Bucharest, uh, uh, Vienna, whatever memorandum, but replacing nuclear weapons with guarantees of security, Mm -hmm. that would preclude creation of the security vacuum in central Europe or more specifically in Ukraine. And we know how careful today the United States and the West are about Russia. Not because people are concerned that what they do would somehow, Putin would not like it. They're concerned that the nuclear weapons can be a response from Russia. So what that suggests to me that if Ukraine would have nuclear weapons today, it's most likely that this war would not happen. Or if Ukraine had guarantees that would be on par with the guarantees that NATO provides, that war would not happen. And that's something that certainly was not thought through. That's something that was not considered in 1994. And the Probably most disturbing part is that people who participated in in negotiations leading to Budapest Memorandum really don't want to admit that.
3: And also you mentioned that in 2008 uh, Germany and France uh, rejected Ukraine's plan in order to join alliance. Do you know the nature of such decision and is there cross-imperial sympathy as
2: Germany and France also empires? I don't know exactly what was happening behind the closed doors and what the motivations are. But I treat with great respect the comments made by, at that time, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Poland, or maybe he was Minister of Defense at that time of Poland, Władysław Sikorski, who was present at the Bucharest Summit. And his understanding is that Germany in particular, Chancellor Merkel, took that position because she was threatened by Putin that if NATO provides Georgia and Ukraine with so-called MAP, the membership action plan, then Putin would attack Ukraine and Georgia. And he then says, not without sarcasm, that actually Ukraine and Georgia were turned away. And Putin attacked those countries anyway. So it's difficult for me to say whether that was exactly how it was, but this is an opinion of a person who was in the room when some of those key decisions were made.
1: One of the things that I think a lot of Western leaders don't realize, especially those in America, because Putin can't necessarily blackmail them because they're uh, an equal power in his mind, even though it's a much larger power, uh, much stronger power. But uh, with the European leaders, I don't think they realize how much influence Putin has on them and how many of those elections Putin has influenced and how many disinformation campaigns had been put into play for these leaders to be elected in these countries. So they could have this homogenous sort of unity with Putin where they where he has a lot of compromising information on them and he has a lot to hold over their head, and they do things the way that fits Russia. And I think that a lot of people in the West, even these even the intelligence services didn't realize how deep the web was until 2022.
2: Yeah, and uh, certainly in the United States it took a while to realize that and to figure it out and certainly Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. was on the receiving end of that sort of yeah. operations during elections here in the yeah. U.S.
1: Oh yeah, she was definitely in the receiving end of what Russian troll farms can do and how they can and how they can turn you from a winner into the most hated person <laughs> in a country. I, I do believe that if Russian bot farms were not involved, Hillary Clinton would have been
3: president and we would have mm-hmm. still had her as president today. And what security in Ukraine means for Europe and for United States?
2: Well, what we see today and something that probably until February 2022 most of Europeans didn't realize that Russia is a revisionist power, that Russia is a real threat to the European security and to global security as well. And certainly if Ukraine would not fight back today's European security would actually look much more problematic than it is with Ukraine fighting back. And Europeans slowly understand, it takes time, but slowly understand that what is decided on the battlefields in Ukraine is not just the future of Ukraine, but also the future of European security. Ukraine's Western neighbors in Baltic states, in Poland, in Romania understand that much better, and they started to understand that sooner than any other group. So the victory for Ukraine means actually strengthening the security in in Europe's east, in EU's east. It means strategic defeat for Russia, and that means less threat coming from Russia, at least, in the medium and short term. And we see that in the continuing support for Ukraine from Europe. We see the support for Ukraine's membership in NATO coming from Mm. Europe now, not from the United States. So that's a reverse Mm. situation from the Bucharest summit. We see Finland and uh, Sweden joining NATO. All of this are signs of this uh, understanding that comes maybe late, certainly from the Ukrainian perspective, but eventually it comes to Europe.
1: Would you agree that Europe's security also means um, so? It's kind of an unofficial but treatment nonetheless nonetheless of Eastern European countries as lesser than Western European countries. And I think that a lot of this could have been prevented had Western Europe listened to the concerns of Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland since 2014 and before that. But they didn't, because obviously Western Europe is quote, more developed, unquote, right, and has more military power and stuff like that. But the threat comes from a power that we Eastern Europe are used to dealing with we know their tricks we know their tr- we know what they have in their sort of you know in in their pocket would you would you say would you agree with the statement that security of Europe in general depends on Western Europe treating Eastern Europe as equal
2: Eastern Europe manifested itself in a number of ways uh, with the start of the all-out aggression. We have Baltic States and Poland on the one hand, we have Hungary on the <laughs> other. They're all allegedly one Eastern <laughs> Europe. So there, there is more than one Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. And one thing that is very clear that the position taken by Poland, the position taken by Baltic States turned out to be the correct position that was in the mm-hmm. interest of Europe as a whole. And certainly you uh, were asking question about Germany before that. In, in places like Germany, there was a very long and very difficult process of realization that just by allowing Putin to swallow Crimea and demonstrating to him some, some respect, as, as was stated by one German admiral, was nothing short of the policy of appeasement. And mm-hmm. the more you appease aggressor, the more bold and the more aggressive he becomes. And clearly, clearly, not everyone, but many in Eastern Europe, have the right to say now, I told you so.
0: That's it for today. This conversation is over, but there are many more to come. To ensure we can keep publishing these interviews, please don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to our Substack to support our journalism, linked in the description. It really does help. And if you have any comments or suggestions, don't hesitate to email us at socialborlingen.media. Otherwise, we'll talk next time.